good whatever time of day it is for you. Uh, I'm BZ Douglas, and this is my podcast, BZ Listening. Every Monday on this show, I bring you the songs and stories of a different grassroots musician. This week, my guest is indie rocker and musical architect Michael McFarlane. Uh, We ended up covering a lot of ground in this interview, so I had to break it up into two parts. Today's episode covers Michael's childhood being homeschooled by his two exceptionally brilliant parents, what it was like gigging as a teenage musician, and I even got him to recall his most cringe-inducing lyric from those days, his creative process, how he's managing to achieve a middle-class career in music, and his new conceptual sci-fi music project, Hello Head Rush. The second part of this interview will drop tomorrow, where we discuss the origin of McFarland Manor, the Cleveland house show that Michael co-produces with former guest Mikey Silas and future guest Cassie Bishop. For any of you in the area, the next McFarland Manor show is coming up this Saturday, April 27th. You can find links to that event and all of Michael's work up on the website at bzdug.com podcast. That's bzdug.com. And as always, uh, thank you so much for listening. And now let's get on with the show. This guest makes me nervous. Um, <laughs> he has the most natural radio voice I've ever heard. See, you, you say it's natural, but I actually, I worked at uh, an NPR station when I was in college as their, not, I was never on, on air, uh, but just being surrounded by people that uh, when they run into the, like, the, the what used to be a um, storage closet that, uh, that happens to be the office for the uh, multimedia designer, um, and they request a uh, a graphic. They always do it in full radio voice. They don't break. There's like, so we have a breaking news story that we're going to need. Uh, we're going to need a new image for this. It's going to feature this and this and this and and. So just kind of through osmosis, or just being I, I think around it. I, I imagine it must. How be long were you at that job? Uh, two and a half years, somewhere right around oh, that, there. That would do it. Yeah, yeah. So I I was uh. Um, steeped in the world of, of public radio. For Wait, so let me ask. Can you do any sort of uh, impression of I am what ter- you sounded like before <laughs> you worked at NPR? Were you like, oh, I had this crashy little voice. So, so I never actually, I never had the whole thing with my voice breaking and cracking. Um, but I was homeschooled, so I was kind of a weird, awkward dude. Really? In a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I was. Kin- I need to talk to you about that. I was That's a kindergarten dropout. I went, uh, went, to, um, went to kindergarten for one month, and that was it. Yeah, um, we're homeschooling. Oh, well, excellent. We don't really put it out there on social media. It's one of those things where we're like, well, we're doing it. And if it succeeds, we'll we'll tell everyone about it. But if it, <laughs> if, it turns out if we, we fail, we realize we made fault. a huge mistake in six months. It'd be nice to not have to take that back online. Fair enough. Well, yeah, I um, so what, yeah, I, I was homeschooled for uh, for my. What entire... was your parents' uh, reasoning for homeschooling you? I I think one of the biggest reasons was that they thought they could do a better job. Um, my father's a nuclear physicist, so um, I'm, inten- I'm inclined to agree with him already. <laughs> so there's, and my my mother's a biologist. She worked at NIH before, um, you know, deciding to be a well, 
they moved to Texas after she did the NIH work. And uh, in the late 60s, early 70s in College Station, Texas, there just was not a place for a female scientist. And so she uh, she ended up becoming a stay at home mom, which was, you know, partly voluntary, but partly way to go, America. Let's yeah, let's exactly. have this very smart woman not get a job. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, so yeah, my, my parents were, were both scientists and, uh, my father, you know, was a, was a teacher and my mother became one and was pretty good at it. I'd, I'd say the number one critique people throw at homeschooling is, uh, socialization. Um, How do you, how do you, for me that lands, you know, with us homeschooling, a lot of it comes out of my, uh, you know, us recognizing Dominic has a lot of the same things that got me diagnosed with ADHD in like okay. third grade. And, you know, where I came out on that, it, you know, after like, you know, I'm 40 years old and, you know, coming out of school and mm-hmm. it, I really disagreed with not necessarily the diagnosis, but the, the fact that like the treatment they give you for that is really like, well, this will help you conform and succeed in this mode mode of learning. Right. But the point. But then I learned later in life, like, no, I learn fine when I'm not stuck sitting in a desk, right. having to learn arbitrary things. And I and I'm an extremely inquisitive, curious person. I can't stop learning. I can't stop trying to grow. I'm, you know. It, but none of that came. None of that was lit up by school. And so we just kind of. I feel like we started seeing the same things in Dominic, mm-hmm. and just being like, I don't want to be put up to that choice of where the teachers are going to tell us like you either got to chemically restrain him or we're going to put him in special classes or something or whatever and so we just decided like let's see how this goes with homeschooling but the number one thing that gets thrown at is the socialization thing and my immediately where i land on that is my memory of school is that the social aspect of it was a fucking nightmare. From high school on, my parents gave me the choice if I wanted to go to public school, they'd be okay with that. At that point, I had a decent number of friends that were going to public school um, through through various networks. Uh, we were part of... In this... Yeah, you're not just at home, though. Right. You're out doing things, and you do meet people. Exactly. We were, we were part of a, a homeschool. They called it a support group, which sounds like homeschooling is some weird addiction that you need people for. But uh, we were part of a homeschool support group that uh, that once a week uh, we would all get together and uh, and you know different different parents had different expertise my my dad taught a physics class um, for one semester quote unquote of that um, my my friend Alex's father was a pastor he taught a class on public speaking um, that uh, that I you know learned a lot from from his approach to that but yeah so I, I made friends through that uh, and specifically through, uh, through Alex, since he was involved with the church, he had friends that were and, going to public school. Yeah, that, and so you made friends, mm-hmm. and you, but you didn't have to deal with like, because what public school is, is you're just thrown into a room, mm-hmm. and you have like half the kids are indifferent to you, mm-hmm. a quarter of them are outright hostile, <laughs> and then a, maybe, if you're lucky, a quarter of them are like friendly with you. Which that's that, my memory of it. That squares pretty well with what uh, what my friends who were going to public school shared with me, and 
but yeah, so so when the opportunity was presented to me, like, hey, you could go to public school if you wanted to, which may have been just my parents being exasperated, having to put up with teenage me at that point. <laughs> There's definitely the thing of in the early years of homeschooling, it's it's the kind of basics where we're not nuclear physicists and and and, and brilliant people, but you know, like. We can get through basic grammar, math, and, mm-hmm. and literature, and the survey stuff of just like priming you for the world. I I think we're definitely thinking about like oh where where do yeah do we re, you know find our people to form a co op for when we get into the heavier subjects? But we're also open to at any point like with the boys like you know do you want to go back to school? You can tell us you want to go back. Which I th- I think you know providing that option is is an important thing. But if if it's a positive enough learning environment and so that you know there were there were positives and negatives to it it's difficult um as as part of the parent-child relationship to have your mother also be your teacher because sometimes you really really hate your teacher and the things that your teacher is making you do so it add it does add a layer of potential conflict Mm -hmm. to the parent-child relationship that's uh that's not always there um, and it, it also means that you you are, and this is a positive and a negative thing, you're spending a lot more time with your children. Sometimes getting them the hell out of the house and not having to deal with them might be a, uh, might be a yeah. sanity in, improver for, uh, for both parties. But well, it's definitely when, when I say when I say we are homeschooling, <laughs> Deb is homeschooling, and I am executive producing the homeschooling <laughs> to a large portion because I am out at a job all day and then working a job at nights on freelance. And, and she had already been doing it with Charlie for kindergarten mm-hmm. because he just he didn't make the cutoff, and we could have put him in early, but we felt it wasn't right for him. Uh, for different reasons, but so she just took on kindergarten for Charlie with homeschooling. And then when she decided to start doing with Dom in December this year, um, she'd sort of share some of Charlie's lessons with Dom, like listen in. Mm -hmm. And she started to find all these gaps in his knowledge, which is like taking ownership of his education. We learned that like, oh, you don't know the continents. You don't know, um, you know, these different just survey things of the world that we thought were covered. So. Gotcha. You don't yeah. know how to write on a line. <laughs> yeah, she and she could take the time with him to just be like, no, do it again. You're not writing. You can write better than that. <laughs> and hold him to a higher standard that a, a teacher just couldn't. Oh, and I, I can tell you with absolute certainty, um, the standards that my parents held me to compared to when I went to college, like college, the academic classes felt so easy after what I'd done in the equivalent of high school. Um, and so you can you can really, you know, you can set the standard higher than is expected. And, you know, a lot of the time, I think children will, will achieve that standard. And one thing that you mentioned earlier, as far as, you know, you're not nuclear physicists, I recall, and I'd have to, um, to do a little bit of research to find this, but about 10 years ago, there was a study about homeschooling. And uh, the education level of the parents actually had very, very little effect on the hmm. outcomes for the children. Um, the time investment that the parents made was the uh, largest correlation between uh, between that and the the outcomes. Um, and of course, it was using standardized testing as the outcomes and all that. But um, 
you're yeah. learning along with them. Right, exactly. So you're exactly. actually, even you don't think you're like, oh, I don't know that much, but you're going through all of, like, in, in these early grades, mm-hmm. I'm running through all of world history briefly, and then we'll go over it again. And so I'm going to be just as educated absolutely and, absolutely know, with having the the you know adult knowledge on top of it of just how things work in the world so you're educating yourself along with your kids so homeschooling parents are slowly getting more and more educated even if they didn't start this so right um so my mother did not know any latin when uh when they sort of were like you know this is the the foundational language that we think that our children should learn because if you can read latin you can probably with a little bit of help read pretty much any of the romance languages you can derive a lot out of that yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. um and so you know mom started studying latin uh and so then a few years later, so she started it along with my sister learning Latin, who is the one who's a, a, a bit older than Dave and I uh, are. And so by the time Dave and I started learning that, she was like four years deep into having studied Latin. And so um, by the end of high school, I translated the first two books of the Aeneid and all of this. And, uh. and so, but but at that point, mom was taking college level classes and translating all these body insult poems that uh that various latin writers wrote because some of that stuff got pretty raw like if you if you uh look into the uh the um poet marshall he's got some pretty sick burns in his poetry (laughs) um it's yeah not uh not for for (laughs) pg audiences um so did uh, and did they share the load equally, or did, you, or did your mom carry more of it? I think I think mom carried more of it um, because uh, mostly because dad was at work, um, and so mom was the one that was there. Uh, dad handled um, the math side of things and um most of the science side of things yeah. which some of some of the stuff that we got to do was was a lot of fun because he had a full lab at the uh the physics department at Kent State um uh, that uh that you know we had access to all the fun chemicals um that <laughs> the uh you have to really make sure you not did to drugs pour. with your dad <laughs> <laughs> well you know what dad uh <laughs> Dad was in dad, California. I, the first time I huffed ether was with dad. He was he was at UC Davis, not UC Berkeley, which is where LSD <laughs> was invented. But I'm guessing there was some some cross pollination of made the LSD. Uh, was great. <laughs> I sing it from the tops of cars, sleeping out under the stars. I sing it to a quiet night. Hope you might hear it too. I sing it from a balcony. Looking out over Bourbon Street I sing the words to the air Hope that they're coming through And I believe You can hear my melody Cause when I leave My heart stays with you And no matter what Gotta keep on singing Knowing my heart that the words come through I am the reason your ears keep ringing Cause I promise, baby girl, I'm coming back to you In a month, you can hear me say it But while I'm out on the road alone This is the song that my heart keeps playing From Atlantic to Pacific till I get back home Oh! 
singer from the Jersey sand to the banks of the Rio Grande. I sing it from the west to east, that's the least I can do. I sing it from the Golden Gate all the way to the Empire State. I sing it from the south to north, hope it's worthy and true. And I believe you can hear my melody. No matter what, gotta keep on singing Knowing my heart that the words come through I am the reason your ears keep ringing Cause I promise baby girl I'm coming back to you In a month you can hear me say it But while I'm out on the road alone This is the song that my heart keeps playing From Atlantic to Pacific till I get back home Oh, no Lord, I'm not a runaway to go so far I miss you every day And so low starts to seem a lonely way I promise baby girl I'm coming back to you If it's the last thing I do If it's the last thing I do No matter what, gotta keep on singing Knowing my heart that the words come through I am the reason your ears keep ringing Cause I promise baby girl I'm coming back to you In a month you can hear me say it But while I'm out on the road alone This is the song that my heart keeps playing From Atlantic to Pacific it's my ticket, take it No matter what, gotta keep on singing Knowing my heart I promise, baby girl, I'm coming back to you In a month, you can't hear me say it But while I'm out on the road alone This is the song that my heart keeps playing From Atlantic to Pacific till I get back home So you have these two uh, scientific engaged parents mm -hmm. Where does uh, music first take its hold on you? Is that something that was in your family, or is that something yeah. that was unique to you? Um, so I am—I probably have of anyone in my family the least musical aptitude. Um, I'm just the one that was passionate about it, so I was stubborn wow. enough. I wasn't—I wasn't gonna stop. Um, uh, so I started studying piano when I was five years old and all the way until the end of... Was that your decision or did they... That was that should... was a parental decision. And... and did you and did you enjoy piano? I did. I did quite a you bit. You are the first person on uh... this stage who was <laughs> told to take piano lessons by their parents and did not say, and I hated it. No, and I... both of those people still play piano and appreciate it, but they hated it. No, I, I really enjoyed it. And No, you're and the first I of four. Credit... That's right. It was three. We were three for three. Wow. You broke... wow. Wow. You broke All right, the chain. breaking breaking that uh, that streak right there. Um, I credit the fact that I had a, I had a teacher that was paying attention to what I was interested in, um, and she. That was the. I think that was the thing that rubbed people the wrong way. It was just, it was just sort of like the the it was like mundane and, mm -hmm. and it was just a chore to get through whatever the lesson I've never taken piano lessons so I don't know yeah if there's good ways and bad ways to go about that it, it was I mean there, there are of course the basics that you you have to work through as far as you know finding ways to introduce music theory in uh, in not incredibly dreary manner 
Um, but she she paid attention to the fact that I was interested in creating my own music as much as playing other people's music. And so she got me started on, you know, learning how to write sheet music and like, all right, you know, here's here's a blank page. Um, write something and transcribe it and bring it to our next lesson. And it, I wasn't writing anything that was uh, compelling or, or prodigious at age seven, but, um, but it, was, it, it was a nod to what are you wanting to do with these lessons? Um, and so I took piano lessons all the way up until uh, around the end of high school. And there was a gap in there of several years, I think three or four years, uh, where I had a different teacher because uh, Gwen Abel, who was my, my um, first teacher, got married and moved away. And, you know, how dare she? Um, and the teacher that I, that I had for several years after that was very much a, you know, you have these exercises that you're going to do and you're going to learn how to, you know, it's finger training and we're aiming for perfection in performance. And, and it was just this very regimented, this is what you do. And I really started hating um, the piano lessons at that point. Um, and then... No, I hear the similar thing about like what the, what's emphasized in piano. And I'm like, and I love playing piano. I mm-hmm. can't. Like, I don't get enough time to just sit down in front of a keyboard and noodle. Um, but, I, yeah, if, if, like, my introduction to it was just, like, make it sound good. Right. And, and not – and if it wasn't communicated to me the value of, like, look, if you burn into your fingers – the muscle memory mm-hmm. of these chords and these scales, it will help you. And there, there, you, you there know, is but it's certainly value to that. Oh, um, yeah, there's you know. so much. But I know younger me wouldn't have known that right. going exactly. in. And if someone hadn't shown me, like, look, you need to get your fingers to know how to do this without thinking about it, and then you can do some cool shit. And I, I think that there's, there's a need to cultivate the passion for music um, in order to make those aspects of the hard work part valuable if you think about um about playing sports for example like regardless of whether you showed any talent at the beginning you're getting thrown out i'll use soccer because that's that's my personal favorite sport you get thrown out onto the the pitch and you know you get to kick a ball around and and everyone else is running around and doing stuff there's there's this experience and there's excitement and you know if you continue with that, then they start you on foot skill drills and and learning actual tactics and strategies, and you're doing those drills mm-hmm. and you're doing the you know the uh, endurance and strength training and all of that. But intermingled with that, there's you know you're getting to play the game too. And yeah. I think so much in uh, learning music, they forget like you gotta play you gotta play the game along with the learning how to do the the technical skills of it. Um, you got to find the joy in it. Mm-hmm. And for some people, the the joy is getting in front of an audience and performing something perfectly and having them applaud. Um, and that's the the perfection was never really something that I was drawn to. Um, and my third piano teacher, uh, who was uh, really fantastic, and I, I credit her in a lot of ways with uh, with the fact that I um, that I fell in love with music again is because I was really starting to be like, I'm done. I'm not interested in this. Um, and I think it was around 14 when uh, when we switched to um, to a different teacher. 
and she went right back to this. So what are you interested in doing? Um, and I wanted to be able to accompany myself when singing. And so she got me working on like fake books and understanding chord structures. She had me working with those of like, all right, this is the chord, find it on there and it's gonna sound right with singing along to this. Um, and uh, along with that, there was a lot of, all right, here's some artists that are maybe doing something a little bit different with, uh, with composition than you might have seen before and, and exploring the different types of sounds that you can make with different chord structures and uh, not focusing on being a virtuosic concert pianist, um, but focusing on learning how to use it to make your own music. Um, so that's uh, that I think was incredibly useful to me. That's I mean, I'm I'm really glad to know that as far as just if we ever get to that point where we're going to tell the boys like you need to learn an instrument, mm -hmm. you know, it's just you need to pick an, you know, pick an instrument or whatever. But going into it, like how we find the right teacher. So so you're probably not going to like what my opinion of the right first instrument is. Oh, what? it's a drum kit. You know, the, uh, the reasoning behind this, uh, most instruments require uh, a pretty strong level of fine motor control in order to make them make the sounds that you're supposed to. Even, even working with, uh, with a recorder, like what, you know, they usually start kids out with, you're doing intricate things with your fingers. Um, playing a drum kit, you're using your entire body. Um, you're using like your full arms and there's there's the intricacies of how you're holding drumsticks, all yeah, of that. Yeah. But you get to use both arms and both legs in order to to make this music and you're learning about rhythm. You're learning about time signatures. The foundations of exactly. all instruments. All yeah. of all of that foundational That's stuff. That's a really great point. That uh, that if you do move to piano, you're still going to be your your hands are going to have to be able to do different things at the same time. Your feet are going to have to be able to work the pedals independent of your hand. So you're already learning that large motor control of having you know the the pat your uh, head and rub your tummy at the same time. That kind of thing it comes with learning to play the drums. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a strong proponent of of the the drum kit as the first instrument that kids learn because. It gets them to you can you can do you can really make music with the drums before you could do much with a piano or with a recorder or with any of those other instruments. And we need a drummer. <laughs> I mean, the you, goal you, the goal for Deb and I we started shitting out people because we want to have a band <laughs> and we figure it's easier to just make oh, the yeah. band absolutely than to have to go on Craigslist. <laughs> Well, they came out of your vagina. You didn't technically shit them out, I guess. <laughs> you, you more pissed them out. <laughs> your last weekend in town You say if you're around Come to meet me under the street lights Coffee and cold hands stay out till daylight Three months measuring time Three days down to the line Savor the sense and sentences we share You know it's coming soon The last sunset of summer The last 
15 or 16 that I really started writing songs and like pulling together my first band and playing out a lot. Um, in retrospect, like I was calling up bars at age 16 trying to book gigs for my band and and succeeding. And that's a little bit weird to me. <laughs> now, did you back. ever book a gig and then you showed up and they said, you can't come in here. You're 16. Yeah, we did. We did run into that a couple times. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting because uh, this was back before every venue had a website that you could go on and read about whether they were all ages and what their policies were and all that. And, you know, I'm, I'm just cold calling them to find out when the the booker is going to be there. Um, and you know, it's, uh, if this was before Facebook where you could go and look and see, okay, they've got such number of fans around here and they, you know, you can hear their sound samples and all this. Like there were some places that you'd call up and talk to them and they'd be like, yeah, sure. Come play on this date. We've got such and such other bands on there. Like sweet. We're in, we're playing at whatever place in Akron and we'd get there and be like, oh, you're, you're really young, aren't you? Well, 
We're not going to kick you off the bill, but which leads me you, to believe you had this deep radio voice from a young age. So, so by the time I was I was uh, sixteen, my voice had dropped about to. I, I was a baritone already by that point. Um, I didn't necessarily have the uh, the diction for uh, for radio at that point, but uh, but yeah, the the voice sounded like an immature adult if that makes sense it was low enough that that you could believe that i was in my 20s and well a lot of musicians aren't exactly the most adult folks to begin with so <laughs> the the venue uh, bookers might have just been like all right probably just some you know adolescent-ish 20 something um but yeah so there there were several instances where we'd get there and they'd be like all right, you can play the gig, but you have to wait outside, go straight on stage and unload, uh, like load your stuff off stage immediately and then leave. Like uh, we've already put you on the bill, whatever, it's fine, but uh, yeah, next time you're going to have to be accompanied by parents. And what was <clears throat> And what was your early music um centered around do it was there uh were you doing all the songwriting and then bringing people together or was it collaborative or uh what what is six what does 16 year olds sing about um 16 year olds or what is a 16 year old michael Mc- i mean you can't you don't have to speak for all 16 <laughs> <I> was, year olds <laughs> well there's there's i mean there's angst to be sure I'm as sure. as I, I think i can speak most, for most of it unjustified though oh, of course of course in retrospect um for for 16 year old michael mcfarland there was a uh, a decent amount of of unrequited love a decent amount of uh, trying to sound deep and introspective and like I understand things about life. Um, and in looking back at it, some of the lyrics hold up. I, I think I did so moderately convincingly. Um, what lyric holds up the least? Oh, <laughs> see, it was, it was a joke song. It was a song about how uh, my brother uh, commented at some point in the writing process that all my songs were starting to sound the same. And so I wrote a song about the uh, uniformity of my own writing uh, and the lack of originality between my own songs. And uh, the final line of the chorus is, is this original enough that all the homies gonna call me fly? <laughs> <laughs> Now again, Woo! intentional big props, song, big props but... for just balling admitting that. <laughs> I had to pull that out. Like, well, I have here some research I found. Where you... <laughs> oh no, that's I'll I'll gladly admit that one. I'm still actually a little bit proud of that, but it wouldn't wouldn't hold up now. <laughs> Oh, I take that, that. That takes some stones. Just be like, yeah, this is good. I'm gonna say this out loud. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna the microphone. sing this on stage for people, and they're gonna think it's worth listening to. Oh, yeah, that's that's uh, that's what 16 year old Michael would write about. So did so you went on to college? I did. Yes. And what did you study in college? Uh, visual communication design. Uh, so where at? Uh, Kent State. Yeah, so my father was a professor there, so the whole 
free tuition thing uh, was was hard to pass up. And Kent State has it's a, a good it's a good university. Yeah, and and their uh, their graphic design visual communication design program is excellent. So it was uh, there's actually a, a very specific moment that I can point to where I decided to go into graphic design. Um, so I was I think I would have been 17 at that point. Um, my family had gone down to the Florida Keys for vacation. It was warm, so again, being that I had come from late winter, early spring in Ohio down to the Florida Keys, one would think that I'd be wanting to take advantage of as much sunlight as possible. Um, however, at that point, my high school band was getting ready to release our first full-length album, and instead of going to bed so I could get up and enjoy the sunshine, I was staying up until four in the morning on my dad's laptop designing the album cover. Um, and it kind of clicked with me there, like this is something that dovetails with being a musician. Um, and it's a practical skill to have applying to your own passion. Right, um, and it's something that I could do from anywhere. Uh, so the idea of being a... <laughs> freelance graphic designer slash musician that could take his work on the road when he goes on tour um that sort of solidified right then and that's kind of the path i've been on since really um and it's worked out so far i've i was able to tour all around the u.s and bring my laptop and do work for graphic design clients um from truck stops and campgrounds and all over the place uh and it's been a really it's dovetailed really well with being a musician being able to build my own website do my own logo design my own album covers all of that stuff um because all of those are expenses that that musicians usually have to have to factor in um to being able to try to build a career and get the artwork for their albums and all of that and being able to do it yourself saves a whole lot of money. So then coming out of college, did you go work for agencies? No. Or uh, how, how did you, so you have freelance clients. How did, how did you build that as a business? Uh, I made business cards and um, spoke with passion about graphic design and gave people business cards. And they called me and said, hey, I need this. And it sort of uh, grew from there. So you went from college, and you, did you when you graduated and you're you're uh, you kicked off a freelance mm -hmm. graphic design career? Did you go right into music full time? Um, so I never had really stopped doing the music thing seriously alongside, uh, like when I was. Or did it escalate once you got out of college? Did you throw yourself into it more? Now I did. I did. Since there there was more time available for that without having to um, to pursue the other college courses, um, so I was playing in a. Um, progressive alt-punk band uh, at that point. We were doing these big concept albums about failed revolutions and things like that. Um, and uh, Wait, so, so you mean progressive as in politics as opposed to like prog rock? It was a little bit proggy in some places. As It was actually uh, uh, Nick from the band Walk the Moon that used the phrase uh, progressive alt-punk about what, what we did. Because um, I, remember, I remember playing a show in Bowling Green, Ohio at a place called Howard's 
Um, and it was the first time that we met the guys in Walk the Moon. Um, and there were a total of, I think, seven people in the audience. And four of them had come to see us and three had come to see Walk the Moon. And then uh, um, we played with them again in Kent. Uh, this was shortly before they, they really blew up and started to make waves with um, with Anasun and, and everything moving on from there. But uh, but yeah, he, he was chatting with me afterwards. And he's like, yeah, the, the progressive alt-punk thing you guys have going on. I'm like, that's what we need to call Thank ourselves. You. We've been trying to figure that out for years. The the full-length album that we put out was it was a concept record that there was a story that ran through the whole thing, and there were songs that that's the verse... Pro- that's proggy. Right, exactly. The, there was one song that the verse was in 7-8 time, and then the chorus was in 6, and then it went to a swung 4, and then back into to 6 for the final chorus. Oh, no, with, you didn't. Right, so it's getting... I know what all those mean. Exactly. Oh, my God, I can't <laughs> believe you did that. But that's, that's the proggy part of it, is like... <laughs> you know doing stuff with music theory for its own sake in a lot of cases of like we're gonna do stuff that's difficult like because it's difficult it's geek rock right exactly this is is, the musicians will get it right exactly and and to be fair on my latest record i did write a song entirely in seven just to see if i could manage to write a hooky song in seven and not have people notice it um so there's still some of that in me which song is that uh it's called skip yeah, it's uh um and the the whole idea behind it, I was talking to my friend Kevin Conaway, um, and uh, we were talking about songs that were in odd time signatures like uh, you know, Money by Pink Floyd and and uh um you know, there uh Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel. Um the ability to make a song that gets stuck in people's heads even though because the those odd time signatures feel uncomfortable and they're hard to write um, in a way that people are gonna like bop their head along with them and, and want to sing along. And so it was sort of a, uh, challenge to myself, like, all right, I'm going to write a song that's in seven that people won't realize is in seven and will get stuck in their head. So I, I think I accomplished that. I've had a couple of people tell me it, it was their favorite track off the record. So I'll pat myself on the back a little bit for that one. If you were a song, I'd press a peach, she said to me, and now you've got me wanting you so desperately. I lie awake, wishing you were next to me. Don't you know? Oh, oh, my love is like a record. Always skip to the same track. It never sounds quite the same on the playback. My one track heart is humming in your haystack. For your needles, so, oh, oh. So can we skip right to the good parts? Looking for a new start. Just don't beat the two hearts. Skipping oh, oh, oh. I know nothing here can keep us down. Synchronizing sacred sounds. Tables turn the record around. Everybody else's volume dropped and all the noise 
a bit in distant aftershocks It's like a choice Between a desert and a deluge aqueduct Let it flow Oh, oh So can we skip right to the good parts Looking for a new start Just when we were too hard Skipping oh, oh, oh I know nothing here can keep us down Synchronizing sacred sounds Tables turn the record round Skipping oh, oh, oh To the song you wanna hear again Skip like a hot shot to laugh and then Skip like a child through the air again Like a lark, skipping sauce Hear me now Skip to the song you wanna hear again Skip like a hot shot to laugh and then Skip like a child through the air again Like a lark, skipping sauce Hear me now Skip right to the good parts Looking for a new start Just when need but two hearts Skipping oh, oh, oh I know nothing here can keep us down Synchronizing sacred sound Tables turn the record around Skipping oh, oh, oh Can we skip right to the good parts? Looking for Does songwriting for you, or or song craftsmanship, like mm-hmm. putting a whole song together, does it start for you with um, like the lyrics and, and and a theme or an idea, or does it start with music that you want to find words for? Um, more of the theme and idea, but not really either of those. Um, so, I in in a lot of ways, I view songwriting the same way that I view graphic design, which is that I'm trying to accomplish something with the songs that I'm writing. I am trying to evoke a specific emotion in a listener. I'm trying to make them want to get up and dance for a song. Um, I'm, I, I want to make them cry, something like that. Uh, so I'll start with what is the end result of someone listening to this song and then work back from that goal? Um, and so both the music and the lyrics come out of that. So in this case, I wanted to write something that was was catchy and and had this odd time signature but would still get people nodding their heads and, and dancing along. And so I worked back from that and ended up, the, the song's called Skip, Specifically because there's one beat missing because, you know, in your standard eight beat pattern, there's there's one that's gone at the end. And so I was like, okay, so what can I make this a metaphor for? Um, And so I worked back from this idea of the name of the song 
to the uh, the lyrics that came out of that. And then, you know, was able to find things that were going on in my life at that point that I could tie it into and personalize it and uh, and make the lyrics still be meaningful and not just like I'm tossing some throwaway stuff on here to accomplish this goal. Um, but um, that's kind of been how most of my songwriting's gone is like, I have something I'm trying to accomplish with this song in how it's going to affect the listener and I'll work backwards from there. Um, so for example, my song Bottle Rocket, which is uh, one of the ones that people will actually yell at me from the audience to play it if I, if I haven't yet, which feels pretty it's cool. It's your free bird. Right. It's, it's between that and Lighthouse. Uh, and I, have, I have a song called Lighthouse that people like, I almost always end the set with with lighthouse and halfway through the set people will be like you, have you played lighthouse yet and be like <laughs> if i'm going to it's gonna be at the end guys come on now um but uh uh but bottle rocket i wrote the song because i wanted to make the music video for it uh so i had this mu- music video concept and i was like all right i need to write a song that justifies the creation of this video and so i worked backwards from the music video idea to the song and ended up with bottle rocket the concept being that people would be tying messages to bottle rockets and shooting them off and having them explode, and so the you know their burdens would go off into the atmosphere and and disappear in this flash of light. Um, and so I had that. Have you ever done that? We threw an entire party that was all centered around that and shot a music video for it. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. So the uh, the entire video, um, apart from the performance part, that was just me running around my yard holding a <laughs> laptop with the the webcam <laughs> uh, pointing at me as I sang. Uh, the entire video was uh, from people's webcams and cell phone cams and like you know their little digital cameras this was back before everyone had a great camera on their phone um but it was all footage that uh that people collected it's of a really this party. low res video you know it's it <laughs> the, i i intentionally processed all of it with like a camcorder filter to make it look even oh, nice. grimier than a lot of it did so it sort of evened out because some some people actually brought along DSLRs and we're shooting good quality video and some people like, what are you doing you're fucking this up <laughs> yeah so I had to make that footage look a lot worse and other footage was you know like, barely nice effort, recognizable but I'm gonna I'm gonna completely stomp on your nice <laughs> yep. camera <laughs> exactly um, and and uh, there was this whole station where people could write notes and I asked people to take pictures of what they wrote um, leave it anonymous but take pictures of what they wrote before attaching it to the, the bottle rocket so intercut uh, uh, in the the last part of the video is all the things that people wrote on the messages that they were sending off and that you know exploded and they were able to oh, that's really uh, cool. to leave behind so so yeah that's my my songwriting process is is working back from an end result do you find that you draw from the same uh emotional core for a lot of songwriting like you know some people write from a place of pain some people write from a place of joy some people just find whatever there is um for the most part uh the 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 thread that seems to run through 
a lot of what I've written and it, it was never an intentional thing um, but a lot of what I write is finding the bright spots in the darkest parts of life um, so a lot of times it's when I've gone through some really difficult stuff that I'll start writing but very little of it is you know just oh woe is me it's the um, writing the songs that I need to hear at, at that point um, so it's so a lot of times it's that that uh, end result that I'm looking for is what song would someone that's feeling the way I'm feeling right now need to hear? Like what what song would I write for somebody that feels the way I do? Um, and so there there are a lot of um, these sort of comforting yet anthemic pieces that I've written that um, are written first person, but they're not about me as that first person there about the people that have been there for me in these these places so so coming up in in music uh you know you said you had a fairly musical family mm -hmm. and were there influences that came in from outside that in like the local music scene or like larger influences in just larger pop culture of music that you can look at and be like, that's someone who really uh, has, I, I started navigating in their waters. Um, so when I started writing my own music, so, so I had, I had grown up and this is, this is part of the homeschooling thing is that um, I hadn't really listened to the radio all that much when I was younger. It just wasn't part of our lives um there wasn't a radio that you could easily just turn on and tune to things and um so my dad's record collection was a lot of what i listened to early on um and that was a lot of 60s folk and like protest music uh, like phil oaks is one of my still my all-time favorite mm. songwriters that he um his uh i ain't marching anymore album is still 100 relative uh, relevant and should be uh should be listened to um but uh so that was that was where i'd sort of come from uh when i was around 14 i got a walkman that had a radio in it um and uh started listening to deluxe i know it was it was fancy um Started listening to uh, 107.9 The End, which was the the alternative that's, that's rock station. Gone now, right? Oh, it's been, that's been yeah. gone for uh, yeah. No, long, I remember. Long. I remember when that came out, and it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Well, they they signed on the air the same way they signed off, which was with 24 hours straight of REMs. It's the end of the world as we know it. Um, <laughs> I remember. And, I remember that going away party. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, so, uh, so I started listening to that and the bands that, uh, that really grabbed me from that era, um, Our Lady Peace was, uh, was a big band that I, I latched onto. Um, and a lot of, a lot of bands, uh, Eve Six, Matchbox 20, that kind of stuff, um, was what kind of caught my ear. Third Eye Blind was a huge influence on my early writing, and there's still a decent amount of that DNA that flows through what I'm doing. Um, and uh, those were the songs that I was listening to when I started writing songs, and, and in truth were the songs that made me want to write songs. Um, and moving forward, uh, Jimmy Eat World became a really big influence of mine. Um, 
the uh, the Joshua Tree album by U2. Um, I must have listened to that 5,000 times. <laughs> and the, um, la- the last McFarlane show, you and I were bonding over a love of Bright Eyes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in college, the, the Fevers and Mirrors album, I listened to so, so, so many times. I was telling um, Deb, like, she needs to sit down and just listen to that. <laughs> That's an album. You listen to it from beginning absolutely. to fucking absolutely. end. And it, it, it it's so rewarding, especially his interview at the end. Mm-hmm. I just recently re-listened to that. It's so fucking brilliant. Yeah, that that album is is incredible. Um, and I think we talked about Cursive uh, and their Ugly Organ. I album. listened to them on the way home from McFarland Manor, and I enjoyed them quite a bit. Yeah, that that album is one of one of my absolute favorites. And and you know what what Bright Eyes and Cursive and and a lot of bands. You know, those are all Saddle Creek record bands from the the Omaha area exactly the, the naughties I call them the naughties that's so much more fun than what most people call it the 2000s no. back in the naughties um so uh so yeah that that really helped solidify my idea of um albums should have some cohesive thread that runs through them um, well, I was, it was interesting. Maddie uh, Finn was my last guest, mm-hmm. and she just—I—I never heard this perfinion, uh, perfinion before. <laughs> perfinion. That's a good word. I never word. heard this. It's uh, uh, very Lewis Carroll of you. She said, "Like, well, I recently made a, mu- a new album, and I, I don't really agree with albums. I don't think there's any point to them anymore." So this is this is a debate that uh, that I've been having with some friends recently. Um, there's some people that's like, you know what? It's it's a singles world out there. Like everyone's just putting out single tracks, um, and I really think that uh, that there is even more so than than uh, than four years ago. I would say there is a huge place for albums because in the world where streaming is king. Um, you're going to have to get people to listen to one song a huge number of times. However, if you've got 10 songs and people listen through the whole thing over and over, that's that's going to net you like 25 cents. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Everybody thinks they will have a time to shine But everybody's life gets a little weird sometimes So open your eyes, say your goodbyes And watch all the lies disappear Cause tonight, I got a bottle rocket Pointing at the stars and at last I got it right Now the skies are clear, it's going up and out of sight Steps on the men, take the mistakes, call them in 
Till the night is falling, hear the countdown and it's on Cause tonight, I got a bottle rocket Pointing at the stars and at last I got it right Now the skies are clear, it's going up and out of sight Fire and abuse to start it, burning to the black And tonight I'm sending all of the pain, all of the fear to the Like this new world of like you're saying like you know what an out al- you know we're talking about like what an album is mm-hmm. what a, a single is how how are you defining success for yourself as a musician because it feels like the landscape has changed so much from right. when you you know you're young and you're growing up or whatever you know especially if you're a teenager and you you're thinking about like I want to be be a musician and you would look at other musicians who have forged a path to success mm-hmm. that path is gone almost right now. oh so yeah that all what the, do you see is the path of success for a musician or how will you gauge success for yourself um so what you were saying is is completely true that that all of the musicians that i listed were part of the major label system and had you know huge promotional dollars behind them and were all playing to arenas and you know sold out stadiums and all of that and uh the the landscape is entirely different than that now um you know there are still they're mostly legacy acts at this point that are doing that um and a few select pop stars that uh um that they reach... they, they toe the line correctly right and they play exactly. the game and they they do as they're told there's there's another layer right below that that are the working class musicians that um, they're, you know, making enough to pay the bills and they have a fan base. And a lot of times they're, you know, they're touring a lot of the year, um, but they're playing to mostly full rooms. And um, I think that's, you know, that's a, a level of success that does not seem unattainable. Um, along with that, there's also the if you're looking at things from a financial standpoint is being able to make a living playing music. Um, and as a singer songwriter, there are a lot of, a lot of those gigs that you can get that are two to three hours that you're, you're performing and you make a couple hundred bucks for it. Um, you know, you're sprinkling some covers in there, but, 
uh, you do a few of those a week and suddenly you're bringing in enough money to pay the mortgage by being a musician, um, but you're not necessarily reaching the next level of, you know, getting outside of, of your geographical range. One, I mean, like, that's one thing that I feel like, not just in music, in, 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 in many of the arts, whether acting, mm-hmm. music, there, you know, as bad as America is with wealth inequality and the shrinking middle class, it feels like in the arts, the middle class is like a fraction of what it is for the larger country. There's so many like there's, you know, there's Prince literally mm-hmm. and, and then there's, you know, people grinding it out. And, and, and where's the middle class for musicians? It's like because that's one thing as as a musician at the level i am which is i don't think i'm at the tier you're at where you're like you know you're doing paying gigs and things like that um i came to music late along with my you know my wife deb and so we're we're still trying to learn how to be musicians Mm. much less elevate to that level where we're just getting local gigs on on the reg um but i I just, it's so difficult for me to envision, like, what's a middle-class life for a musician? <laughs> and that's, How hard is that to attain? As, and so the question of being a working-class musician is, are you a working-class musician that's playing your own music, or are you using music to pay the bills? Um, they don't have to be exclusive. Um, and, you know, I'm... I'm I've seen in the past year and a half moving from uh, making significantly less money from music than I put into it um, to now making substantially more than I'm spending on being a musician. So there, there are a lot of different ways to approach the idea of being a middle-class musician. Um, I marked a milestone um, about a year ago that I realized for the past six months I had made enough from music to pay my mortgage every month. It wasn't paying all of my bills, but it was covering the mortgage on my house. Um, and that was like one of those like, oh, wow, I, I, I think I can really call this a music career as opposed to like I, I'm trying to be a musician. Um, and it's, you know, having all of the other irons in the fire where, you know, I'm an audio engineer. I've got my own recording studio. Um, I'm a freelance graphic designer. I run a board game company. Like, I do all these different things that depending on um, how much work is coming from any one of them, I can let the others, you know, decrease a little bit. Um, but for the first time ever this past December, I made enough money playing music to pay all of my bills. And that was a, a f- like all of the bills for December were covered by the shows that I played and the um, the sales of of my music and all of that. So congratulations. You know, thank you. Thank you. It's it that felt like a, a huge like landmark. Audience, come thank on. You. Yeah. Thank you. Give it up. <laughs> um, and I, and not not saying that in any way to uh, to try to make it sound like oh i'm doing great because working a job that well you just failed completely we all think you're doing great now (laughs) but but to what you're speaking about about uh it being an industry where i just had a room applaud for saying hey i was able to pay my bills by doing the thing that i for one month for one month (laughs) what i have one one month of my, my entire life 
been able to pay all of my bills by doing the thing that this I've been passionate about. Heavenly light since... came down. Exactly. Above. <laughs> so, so that's you know that's where things are with music is yeah. that paying all of the bills for one month out of eighteen that I referred to um, with music is is worthy of applause. So yeah, there's. <laughs> Uh, I think that kind of says it all right there. When you've run out of steam, it fell short of land. When you're given your heart, you still need a hand. When you follow the charts, but don't understand why your faith fails But when your compass is cracked and won't show the way And the taste on your tongue is all seeing spray As you hold on to hope for the light of day Raise your And never found You'll never run aground Cause I'll be your lighthouse When the siren song steers you to your grave To be dashed on the rocks or beneath the wave and the sonorous sound makes you that slag Cover your ears When the wind's whipping wild in the black of night And your last hope for help's slipping out of sight No stars to be seen but I'm shining bright Stay your face Cause will weigh you down The ship's lost and never found But you'll never run aground Cause I'll be your lighthouse Get up, move ahead, don't you let up Even if it's a setup, I'll be your lighthouse Hold out, though it's dark and it's cold out Even if you've been sold out, I'll be your lighthouse To get up, move ahead, don't you let up even if it's a setup, I'll be your lighthouse. Hold out, though it's dark and it's cold out. Even if you've been sold out, I'll be your lighthouse. Oh, 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 I'll be your lighthouse. Oh, 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 oh,
lighthouse. So what do you uh, have on your horizon coming up? Oh, all kinds of things. So, uh, so recently, I, I mentioned this earlier. There's there's a project called Hello Headrush that uh, um, is a multimedia um, science fiction electro rock concept project. Um, so I put out one single for that. I'm going to be putting out a second single before too long, and then I'm going to be putting out an EP. Um, sort of like we talked about earlier. Um, so the uh, the EP is going to be coming out in late spring. It's going to be called Humanity, with a little asterisk. So, um, now how many songs are on that? EP? There are going to be six songs on that EP. Oh, <laughs> oh. so it's a bullshit EP. <laughs> it's one of those like, oh, that long for an EP. But some of the songs are pretty short, so that's that's. An that's EP is not about it. how many songs; it's about the total length of the songs. I mean, if we're going back to the uh, how the, much you could fit on it, right? On the how vinyl. much you could fit on that disc? That uh, that really is kind of accurate. Which is which is totally a classification we should carry on forever. Absolutely, despite the it's fact so... that we no longer live under the limitations of what can fit on vinyl. Yeah, it's entirely it's arbitrary. Entirely arbitrary at this point, but they are. I I, I like the you know it's a nice digestible amount of yeah. music. Um, you know, it's an EP feels like the set that an opener plays, whereas a, a full length feels like a set that the headliner plays. Um, is, so. is Hello Head Rush something you see as just um, it's sort of a one off, like fun thing to spin off or something you you see like I, I might push. I might see how far this goes. I'm, I'm definitely I mean, I'm as much as I have time to. I'm uh, I'm going to be pursuing that alongside the Michael McFarland uh, project. Um, musically, it's been incredibly freeing to because I I am writing from for the first time in a long time uh, from the perspective of characters that are not me, um, and I'm writing about big ideas of xenophobia and the othering of people and mixing in science fiction with that. But the uh, one of the one of the ideas that uh, that sort of got me started down this path is the um the idea that you you if you can't put a name to something you can't hate it um and if you can't identify it as being different then you can't you know discriminate against it hmm. uh and so the the plot line of this this uh entire project is that in the early 21st century um, androids that are indistinguishable from humans uh, were introduced into the human population and um, through interbreeding with humans by the 25th century they've become half of the population of earth and nobody knows um, because until they they die there is no easily identifiable physiological difference um they're it's like cylons uh, actually very similar to that i was re-watching battlestar galactica recently and that you know when you uh when you incinerate the remains there's a uh uh, uh inorganic compound that you could you could find in there uh so in the case of of these androids once they die their bones um instead of you know calcifying they turn to metal um, and so a scientist discovers, hold on a second, half of the, the population of the entire earth is not human. 
we hadn't realized this. They've just been living here the whole time, and we haven't been hating them. Um, and so we need to fix that <laughs> exactly. Uh, so the uh, the androids are demoted to a servant class, and then a um, populist leader, you know, buoyed by xenophobia, rises to power and has them all executed. Um, one of the other things that the androids themselves had figured out, though, was that they had the ability to network their minds and. Uh, the Android Underground had run a full backup of the minds of all living androids. Um, and so the few of them that had escaped uh, being uh, killed pressed the button and all of these androids that had been piled up in mass graves wake up um, now with metal bones and they're pissed. Um, and so, and they're also trying to come to grips with the fact, like, you know, for a good chunk of their life, they had thought they were human. Now there's something entirely different and all of the humans killed them. Um, so that's, that's the, the idea behind Hello Headrush. This, this is all like buried underneath the lyrics and I mean, it's, it's not even that transparent. The, uh, the first, the first line of the, uh, the EP is going to be, um, we walked among you. We we didn't know, but deep inside, a warm so how transistor you, glow. How do you? I mean, did you just sit down and sort of like brainstorm this sort of? There, there's a lot. I mean, it sounds like a lot of world building. The kind of things that would go into like, I'm gonna start a novel series, so I need to create the rules of this universe. What pre or the pre? And that's that's kind of that's kind of how it was. Uh, it, it happened somewhat organically alongside writing the songs um, because I wanted to, I was putting together a storyline, but I wanted to, to have it exist in an internally consistent universe. And so um, when I'm writing this storyline, I run into the question of like, okay, why? Uh, like I, I wrote a lyric about metal bones, but they're supposed to be indistinguishable from humans how does that work? And so a little bit of, of uh, you know, backfilling the story of like, okay, this is, this is the explanation for how this happens. Um, and okay, how did the scientist figure this out? Well, I'd, I'd, part, of, part of the live performance of this is that I am performing as an android named Atis who is missing one eye and you can see like the eye socket and like metal underneath it um, and then projected on either side of me. This isn't going to help with the I'm not a narcissist thing, uh, but there are projections of me as two other characters playing bass and electric guitar. Um, uh, the characters, the, uh, the guitarist is Lazarus. Um, and he's, and they, they all have distinct personalities. Uh, the bassist is named Mithras, all three of them being characters from mythology that died and rose again. Um, and so, uh, going along with that, I have these, these projection, uh, projections of performances. And, uh, one of the things that I came up with is, uh, like the Android salute that they do. Um, which is, you know, it's hitting the one side of the chest and the other and then the raised fist. And I came up with the salute and was like, all right, there has to be a reason for that. And again, with backfitting ideas, the way that the scientists discovered that they were androids is uh, they have in their, you know, pre-death and resurrection form, they have a vestigial second heart um, that, that's on the right side of their chest, which explains the, the salute. So there are all of these things that sort of feed into each other of, of like you said, world building, um, of wanting to create a 
you know, this expansive universe that I'm only telling like a small story inside that uh, because the story is really about Addis and um, his coming to grips with uh, the fact that he's not what he thought he was growing up, um, that he was, uh, you know, cast down and then killed by the people that he thought he was one of. Um, and then ends up falling in love with a human woman, which uh, it turns out xenophobia works both ways, and his android brothers ah. are not cool with that either. So there's all of these different layers that uh, that naturally started coming into the story as I started building it. Um, and so chapter one ends up with uh, with him and this human woman that nursed him back to health uh, running off into the night and trying to flee the, the main war zone between the humans and the androids and see if they can find um, life away from the war. Very cool. And that's the end of chapter one. Yeah. You know, obviously they're not going to succeed in doing that or we wouldn't have a chapter two. <laughs> it's not going to be a happy ending here. Come on, folks. You can't be nice to your fictional character. Exactly, exactly. Just look at Game of Thrones. How would that have gone if, if uh, you'd been like, ah, everybody gets to live? You know, that's that's one of the things that that's like the only way like I could accept a god is if someone's like, oh yeah, he this is all entertainment for him. Yeah, that's why he does awful shit to us. He's trying to create a compelling storyline. If you're gonna anthropomorphize, like, yeah, that there's a creation deity, yeah, and then try and tell me anything other than like. Well, he just thinks this is all funny. <laughs> okay, it's, that makes that's sense. A, that's a, that's you a can't solid... tell me, he, like, oh, he loves you. And he's doing all these things because he loves you. That's a solid theological argument. Uh, well, like there's it. nothing more fucking <laughs> cruel than writers when oh, you yeah, think absolutely. about it. Like, when you think about what writers do to their characters, and, and thank God they do. There's oh, so yeah. many good stories. But if you stop and think of, like, these were, you know, if you go lax, last action hero, and, like, what are these are real people? Right, exactly. It's it's pretty horrifying. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. You that, got but that would give God, a, that, that would let me get on board with uh, creation, uh, de- deism or anything like that. It's like, oh, he's just a good writer. Yeah, because because in order loves to irony, because irony sucks. Yeah, to, in real life, to create when you've ever had an ironic that, moment, yeah, it's, the it's worst. not good. No, no. But I mean, really, as as a writer, to to create a compelling story, you have to create characters that you love and then do terrible things to them. Like that's you have to make your make a character you will empathize with and then do the worst stuff to them. Yes, so that other people will empathize with them as well and and will be you know. We'll be in it. Well, I, I we have been at this for like two hours, <laughs> so I'm going to wrap up and say, Michael McFarlane, I hope you have a real shitty writer. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate not that. Do anything awful to you? I, I feel the same way for you. Is there blood inside your veins? Do you bleed straight gasoline? Is your heart a home for hatred? Just a pump for your machine? Does your skeleton conceal the soul? Peace you're fighting for? Does your programming predict I pass a point and straight to war? Who's got the sky? Who's at the rocket's